Let me invite you now to turn your Bible uh, over one book from the book of Mark, now to the book of Luke, chapter 23, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 32. Luke 23, 32. Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the King of the Jews. Father, as we consider um, all the, the mocking that we have read again this morning in Mark 15 and now in Luke 23, God, what an amazing thing that in the midst of that, Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them. And so, God, as we hear his words, as we meditate upon his words this morning, move our hearts. Let us not only hear, but truly listen and believe this morning the words of your dear son. We ask in his name. Amen. I think you would probably all agree with me that a person's dying words are quite important words. When a man or a woman, particularly when a believing man or woman, knows that he or she is very soon to meet his maker, very soon to leave this fleeting world behind, very soon to go where that person can speak to their loved ones no longer in this life, their final words, their final conversations, their final exhortations are usually very significant words, aren't they? When a Christian knows that he's dying, he says things perhaps that he always wished he would say but had never said before. He or she says things that loved ones will never forget. He or she says things often of remarkable spiritual weightiness. When you know you're going to die, your words come with a peculiar seriousness and weight and importance. Dying words are important words. And when we sit beside a loved one's bedside hearing those words, we often find ourselves, I think, paying very close attention, don't we? trying to remember those last words. Perhaps even we go home later and write them down in a journal somewhere. And if the dying words of a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a Christian friend come with such weight, come with such uh, a desire to, to remember them, to hold on to them, how much more ought we do these things with the dying words of our Lord? Don't you think? The words that Jesus spoke from the cross are incredibly valuable words. The last words that he said to his father and to his people before his life in this world was snuffed out. And of course we know that every word of Jesus, every saying that ever dropped from his lips, all the red letters in the New Testament, in other words, are precious letters, precious words, right? 
There is immeasurable value and weight to everything that Jesus ever said. His words to us are more precious than gold. He never uttered a stray word or a careless word or a word that we don't need to take down and remember and apply. But if every word of Jesus is a treasure to his people, if everything he ever said is that valuable, how much more his dying words? How much more the words that he uttered from the cross in the final hours of his agony? Seven times in those few hours of unutterable pain, Jesus spoke. Seven times he summoned the energy and the power of will to address his father and his friends. Seven times, in other words, he pushed against the nails in his feet and pulled upon the nails in his hands and stretched out his abdomen seven times so that he could speak, so that he could catch enough breath to utter these very valuable words. And he uttered, of course, seven of the most precious sentences in the Bible. We often call them the seven sayings or the seven words of Jesus from the cross. There is, as we just read, the word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. There's the word of salvation to the thief next to him. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. There are the words of affection. As he spoke to his mother, pointing to the apostle John, woman, behold your son, and then to John, behold your mother. The word of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of suffering, where he simply said, I thirst. The word of victory, it is finished. And then finally, he spoke the word of contentment. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Seven words, seven sayings of the Savior from the cross. Over the years, preachers have found these words of Jesus to be fertile soil for mining out sermons. These words are treasure chests from which many great biblical and gospel truths, old and new, can be brought out and put on display for the people of God. Let me just tell you about two of the more famous sermon series. Uh, they're by uh, Charles Spurgeon and Arthur W. Pink. Um, both men lived uh, over a century ago, but their sermons on these words are famous. They've been turned into books, and th- both of those books are on the resource rack. Both of these men handle these pearls with great skill, and I'd encourage you to pick up those books and read them perhaps in the days ahead. But over the next few weeks, Lord willing, I'm going to try my own hand at opening up this treasure chest, both on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, trying to handle these pearls that Jesus has given us, these amazing words from the cross. And we begin this morning with those words that we read in Luke 23, 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I want us to look, first of all, simply at the word Father. Father, he says, forgive them. His very first words as he hung on the cross here are directed upward. In other words, Jesus' very first words from the cross were a prayer to his Father. In fact, you will find that three of the seven sentences that Jesus spoke from the cross were sentences of prayer, including the very first thing he said and the very last thing he said. There's great significance in this fact that Jesus is praying on the cross and that his first and his final words there are words of prayer. First of all, the fact that Jesus needed to pray is a reminder of his humanity. 
We've been speaking about this in recent weeks with Christmas as well. Jesus really was fully human. He was not a demigod. He was not someone who merely appeared to be human, as is sometimes argued. He was not simply half man and half God. No, he was fully God, but also fully human. And as I said, we focus on these facts at length Christmas morning. We won't linger on them long here, but that baby in the manger was a fully human baby, wasn't it? And the man on the cross is a fully human man. And perhaps nowhere does Jesus' humanity come to us with more clarity, with more power than in these moments on the cross. He is a human who bleeds. He is a human who gasps for air, just like any other human put in that situation would do. He was a human who, like all of us, died. All of these things, these events on the cross, demonstrate his frailty and his humanity. But what I'm saying this morning is so do his very words from the cross. The very sentences that he uttered demonstrate his humanity. In between those gasps for air, as he cries out to God for help, we see that he is just like us, human. He needed to pray. He needed to call out to God for intervention, for help. He needed to call out to God to overrule in this terrible situation. And the fact that he needed to call out to his Father in heaven demonstrates that in his humanity, Jesus is just like us. Jesus needs his heavenly Father. That's why he calls out to him in these Verses three different times. Jesus understood what it is to suffer, to be needy, to have to cry out in prayer. And because he understands how it is to suffer and to be needy and to cry out to prayer, Hebrews tells us that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is an amazing thing. As you listen to Jesus pray, you should say to yourself, sometimes I have to call out to God just like this. I find myself in difficulty and I begin to cry out to God. And maybe I begin with the very same word that Jesus begins with, Father. And if you find yourself calling out to God, crying out to Him as a father and saying, Father in heaven, please, I'm your child, help me. Then you can be sure that Jesus, as we sometimes sing, knows all about your troubles. He sympathizes with our weakness. He too needs to pray. But let me just also say briefly that the fact Jesus called God his father also teaches us something else. His cry to his father demonstrates his full humanity. But also as the Pharisees understood in Jesus' day, Jesus' readiness to call God his father also meant that he considered himself equal with God. That's what we're told in John 5.18. There was something about the way that Jesus called God Father that was different than the way we call Father. Much of it's the same. God is the one who cares for us. We are the ones who need Him. We are His children. But Jesus called God Father in a unique way, right? And perhaps there was something even about the way that He talked about it and said it that the Pharisees knew He is not just saying God is my helper. He's saying I actually am the Son of God, capital S. Listen to what they said or what we're told in John 5.18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself out to be equal with God. So as Jesus calls out in prayer, we identify with him and he with us. He's fully human. But there's something in his ability to call God father that's different from us. There's something in this cry to heaven here in Luke 23, this prayer to his father that reminds us not only of Jesus' humanity, 
but also of his full deity, that he is equal with God, that he is the Son of God, capital S. But this word Father also, and maybe perhaps most strikingly, speaks to us of the relationship between the two. It tells us Jesus is human, it tells us Jesus is divine, but it also tells us that there was an incredible relationship between God in heaven and God on earth, between Father and Son. What kind of tenderness and trust and love does it entail that Jesus is constantly referring to God as his Father? There are many things Jesus could have called God and that we can call God as well, right? We call him creator. We call him sustainer. We call him master. We call him Lord. We call him judge, savior, redeemer, even something as tender as friend. All of these things Jesus might have called God and we as well, but it's significant that Jesus' favorite title for God by far was to call him Father. That's important to notice that that's how Jesus thinks of God on his throne, as his Father who cares for him, to whom he can run in situations like this. And we understand that picture, don't we? Who does a boy run to when he's scared of the storm in the night? Or when he needs his bike chain fixed? Or when he's being bullied at school? Who does he run to? Well, in the healthiest of situations, he is able to run to his father for protection and for help and for direction and compassion and so on. In the healthiest of situations, we understand a boy and his father and the relationship that is there. That tenderness, that affection, that protection, that care. And here we find Jesus, no longer a boy. Here we find him a grown man. And yet as a grown man, he's in trouble. He's in greater trouble than any boy could ever be. Greater trouble than any human has ever been or ever will be. And what does he do? Even as a grown man, even as a grown man who is himself equal with his father, what does he do? He runs to his father. He cries to his father. So here, as he suffered the agonies of the cross, his first words and his last words were uttered to his father. And when persecution here was at its fiercest, he cried out primarily to his father. And when he was dying, at the very end, in the seventh word, he speaks to his father. There's an amazing relationship of love and trust between these two. Jesus knew that his father would hear him and that his father would help him. And I just ask you if you know God as father like that. When you pray, is it natural for you, like Jesus, to call God father? Now I know perhaps you grew up and you learned by rote that you begin your prayers by saying, Dear Heavenly Father. And so perhaps you say, Father, just because it's normal to you, that's the way you learned it. But is it natural to you when you stop and think about, let me talk to God, what am I going to call him? Do you call him father? Do you have that kind of relationship with him of trust, the way a child runs to his daddy when a thunderbolt explodes in the middle of the night or when he needs help with a science project or when he doesn't know how to untangle some knot that he's created? He runs to his father. When you are suffering, whether it's physically, emotionally, 
spiritually, whether it's persecution or fear, or even because of your own sin you're suffering, is it your Father who is the first person to whom you call out? Or when you're just working your way through the daily routine, trying to complete various projects, does it occur to you to consistently go to your Father to help you? Do you trust Him to be a dad like that to you? He was for Jesus. And will your Father be as was the case with Jesus, the last person to whom you wish to cry when it comes time for you to give up your spirit. What treasures are wrapped up here in the fact that Jesus knew God both on the cross and off of it as his Father? And how privileged we are as believers to be able to say the same. We may call God Father. He will treat us as His children. He has called us His children, we who believe in the name of His Son. To all who believed Him, He gave the right to be called children of God, we're told in the book of John. And such we are. We are God's children, and we may come to Him as Father. If you've missed this blessing, or if you've forgotten what it's like to think of God not only as Master and Lord and Judge, remember also that He is Father. We may come to Him just as Jesus does here. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. That's the first word in this first saying from the cross. But let's consider the next few words. Let's think for a moment now about the words, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Three of Jesus' seven sayings from the cross, as I mentioned, are words of prayer. And in this first instance, it's a prayer of intercession. He's not praying for himself here. He's praying for others. And of course, that's one of Jesus' great roles throughout eternity, isn't it? Is that he intercedes on behalf of sinners. And here on the cross, we find him doing just what he always does. Even in his darkest hour, he is interceding for sinners. And what does he pray? He prays, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, we should ask, first of all, forgive whom? For whom is Jesus praying in this famous passage? Is he praying for everyone involved in the crucifixion? I don't think so. I think, based on the rest of the verse, that he is praying for those who were involved in the crucifixion, but ignorantly so. Isn't that what he says? Forgive them. Why? For they do not know what they are doing. He's praying for those who are crucifying him, but who don't really understand the depths of their sin. There is a difference between the sins of ignorance and willful, high-handed sins. There's a difference between people who sin and who don't really understand what they're doing and people who sin with their eyes wide open. And the latter, it seems to me, those are the kinds of sins that were committed in this case, by Caiaphas, the high priest, by the scribes and the Pharisees. These people who arranged and politicked for Jesus' crucifixion. These men who knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and who wanted him dead because of it. They knew what they were doing. We could also probably say the same for Judas and Pilate. They knew what they were doing. Judas had been with Jesus for three years, and he betrayed him into these men's hands just the same. Pilate had opportunity after opportunity, not only to hear from Jesus, but to hear from his wife and to say, this is not the man whom you want to crucify. This man is not guilty. And he did it anyway out of fear. So there were people that day around the cross who knew fairly well what they were doing. 
They knew that they were killing a man who at the very least was sent from God as a great prophet. But what Jesus reminds us here in these words is that there were others who participated in this greatest of all sins, the crucifixion of God's own dear son, who were guilty for what they did, but of whom it could be said they do not know what they're doing. They don't realize the full extent. They knew something of what they were doing, but they didn't know the full extent. And these are the souls for whom Jesus prayed in Luke 23, 34. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, there were a whole host of people who participated in Jesus' murder who seemed to fit this description. People who were largely ignorant of the seriousness, the depth, the depravity of their crime. And they were, in many cases, duped into it by the craftiness of the scribes and the Pharisees that we mentioned. Just think about some of these ignorant people with me for a moment that Jesus prays for, here, uh, prays for here in this passage. Think about the false witnesses that were brought forth by the Jewish leaders to testify against Jesus. Were they guilty? Absolutely. They knew, first of all, that their testimony was false. They knew that their false testimony could cost this man his life. It's probable or at least not improbable, that they received bribes for giving such testimony from the scribes and the Pharisees who wouldn't kill Jesus themselves. So these false witnesses committed heinous sins indeed, no matter who they were crucifying. But what Jesus points out here, I think, is that some of these people didn't know just how heinous their sins were because they didn't really know whom they were betraying. They didn't know against whom they were bearing this false witness. They shouldn't have done it. They were guilty for it, but they didn't realize how guilty. Think also about the crowds around the cross that cried out, crucify him, and asked that Barabbas, a known criminal and murderer, be released in place of Jesus. Were they guilty? Yes. They knew that they were crying out for the execution of a man whose crimes they really didn't understand. If any of them had thought about it for a moment, they would have realized, I'm not acting in justice here. I'm just being driven by frenzy. If they'd have thought about it, they would have realized how irresponsible they were behaving. And it was heinous. But they did not know the full extent of just how irresponsible they were being because they weren't aware, all of them, of just who this condemned man really was. And then we come to the Roman soldiers. They crucified Jesus because it was their job, just like an executioner in our own day. And there's nothing sinister, according to the Bible, about the state executing people who've committed capital crimes. These soldiers, however, were guilty, weren't they? Because they enjoyed the slaughter. They didn't do this simply because it was their job with a heavy heart. No, they mocked the the man. They spit in his face. They beat him with reeds. They crowned him with thorns. They put a robe of purple on his back. And there's no excusing that kind of behavior, no matter whom the victim may be. They are guilty. But as Jesus points out in verse 34, many of them, perhaps most of them in this case, didn't know that they were abusing and mocking and spitting in the face of the Son of God. They do not know what they're doing. They don't understand the full extent of their crimes. And so for these sorts of people, horrible but ignorant sinners, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know 
what they're doing. Now, what does Jesus' prayer mean? Specifically, what is the significance that he prays for these people on account of their ignorance? That's why he prays. Forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they're doing. What is the significance of that? That Jesus would pray for people because they're ignorant of their sins. Well, it doesn't mean that ignorance is bliss. It doesn't mean that if you're ignorant, everything's okay with God. Jesus is not saying or even hinting that these sinners were not culpable so long as their sins were done in ignorance. No, no, the Old Testament teaches us that sins of ignorance are still sins. The Old Testament teaches us that when someone sinned without realizing they were sinning, they still had to bring a sacrifice, a a lamb or some sort of offering still had to be slain and blood had to be spilled even when people committed crimes and did not know what they were doing. Sin is sin is sin, whether you understand your sin or not. Furthermore, the fact that Jesus here begs God's forgiveness shows that these people were still guilty, ignorant or not. They were still deserving of punishment, ignorant or not. Their sins still needed to be forgiven. They were still sinners. And of course, even though these people didn't know that they were crucifying God's Son, they knew they were crucifying someone, didn't they? In the false witnesses' case, they knew they were crucifying someone who was not guilty. In the crowd's case, they were crucifying someone whose crime they really didn't know. And in the case of the Roman soldiers, they were crucifying some with with vengeance and a thirst for blood. So these people were guilty. They were worthy of death and hell, even though they did not know what they were doing. In fact, their ignorance of who this man was was part of their sin. And Jesus in no way dismisses their sins as no big deal. That's the point I'm trying to make. When he says forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, he's not saying sin is no big deal if you don't know what you're doing. He's not dismissing their sins, but he is showing compassion on them. He is sad for them, and he pleads with God that he might have mercy on these foolish, ignorant people. And here we have, to me, one of the great glimpses of the Savior's heart in all of the scriptures. This patience that he shows, this compassion that he shows for the very people who are hanging him up to die. It's amazing compassion, isn't it? Now, Jesus, if you read the New Testament, you'll find Jesus shows very little patience with high-handed sinners. Jesus has very little patience for people who know the seriousness of their crime and simply don't care and do it anyway. But here we're reminded that for those who are blind, for those who have no idea how deep their depravity is, for those who have no idea of the seriousness of their sins, Jesus' heart breaks and loves and longs that they might be rescued from their crime and from the ignorance that drove them to it. No matter how serious the crime, Jesus' heart longs for the forgiveness of ignorant, foolish people. There was no crime ever committed as serious as this one, was there? There was no crime ever as dastardly as the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. There was no greater guilt that ever lay on any group of human beings than that which lay on the hands who crucified our Lord and on the vocal cords of those who urged them on. These people were incredibly guilty. But for those of them who had no idea just how wicked their deeds were, 
Jesus' heart still overflowed with compassion on them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. These people deserved hell, but were too foolish to realize how far they were gone, far gone they were. Too foolish to see the depths of their sins. Too foolish to understand what they were doing, how dreadful it was. And that ignorance, though it was sinful to be sure, aroused the compassion of Jesus. It was precisely these people's ignorance that elicited Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So then, here's the summary of what we should learn from this prayer. While our ignorance does not make us any less guilty of sin, our ignorance and foolishness does arouse the compassion of the one who became sin for us. Let me say that again. While our ignorance does not make us any less guilty of sin, our ignorance and our foolishness does somehow arouse the compassion of the one who became sin for us. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? That our foolishness could make Jesus have compassion on us all the more. That our ignorance and sin could arouse his love for us. But that's exactly what we find here. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Now, I want you to think for a moment about your coworkers and your classmates and your neighbors and your family members who are still in their sins. Are they, as you picture them now, are they doing things every day that the Bible calls worthy of death? Absolutely, they are. And do they know that such things are wrong? In most cases, surely they do. They know that they ought to be different than they are, just like we do. Our conscience tells us we ought to be different than we are. Just like the false witnesses and the crowds and the soldiers that day on Golgotha surely must have felt conviction in their hearts that something was not right about what was going on. But they didn't know just how not right it was. They didn't know just how bad their behavior was because they didn't fully understand whom it was that they were crucifying, whom it was that they were sinning against. And I submit to you that the same is true for many a coworker, classmate, family member, and neighbor of yours. They're doing things all the time that they know aren't right, but they don't know how bad they really are because they don't really know the God against whom they're sinning. They know that it's wrong to hurt other people, and maybe even they believe that there's a God out there who frowns upon certain things, but they don't know that He's holy and just and righteous and perfect. They've never considered what sin really deserves, and they don't know the price that Jesus had to pay for their behavior. They've never really thought about it in detail. So many people around us do not truly know what they're doing because they don't know God. They know what they're doing only at a surface level is wrong. But it's never occurred to them that God is holy, holy, holy. They've never stood like we're standing and sitting this morning looking for 40 minutes on end at the cross and just what sins deserve. And so they sin and they're guilty, but they don't know how guilty they are. And their ignorance is no excuse They still know that they're wrong even if they don't know how bad. Nor does their ignorance make them any less deserving of punishment. The wages of sin, every sin, is death. But what their ignorance does do, what their unwitting march toward the precipice of hell does do, is arouse the compassion and love 
of the Savior who says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They don't know how serious this is. And if the Lord could say that of the rabble crowds that crucified him, I believe he still says it of sinners today, so many of whom don't know how guilty they are. And if the Lord, against whom the sins are being committed, speaks and shows such compassion, if the Lord himself, who is holy, 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 speaks and shows such compassion on ignorant sinners, ought not his people join him in doing so? If your co-worker's ignorance arouses the compassion of Jesus, ought not it arouse your compassion? If your classmate or neighbor's unwitting self-destruction elicits Jesus' prayers, ought that self-destruction not elicit yours? You see, it's easy for us to look down our noses at people who are lost and people who are ignorant. It's easy for us to be disgusted by them. But here is Jesus who has every right to be angry, every right to be disgusted, and yet he says, forgive them because they're so foolish. They know not what they do. The preaching of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, I think, shows this compassion in the people of Jesus in action wonderfully. The compassion of Jesus is clear here. What does it look like in his people? Well, you remember perhaps that at Pentecost, Peter preached to many of these very same people who crucified Jesus. At Pentecost, Peter preached to many of the very same people for whom Jesus prayed in Luke 23. Isn't that amazing? Jesus prays that God will have mercy on them, and God sends Peter just a few weeks later to preach to them. He preached to these same crowds and perhaps some of these same soldiers were there as well at Pentecost. And of course, you remember that Peter did not hesitate that day to speak to them of Jesus as the one, quote, whom you crucified. You remember that? Peter was direct with them. You did this. You're not unguilty. It doesn't matter how ignorant you were. You crucified him, Peter says. But in addition to saying that, he also proclaimed to them through Jesus the forgiveness of sins. Let me just read it to you in the book of Acts chapter 3. Now, brethren, this is verse 17. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. These people deserved anything but their sins being wiped away and times of refreshing come. You crucified him, Peter says, but God has mercy on you. You acted in ignorance. You have aroused the compassion of the Savior, even in your foolish sin. And he has mercy on you. And you, if you would repent and return to him, would find your sins wiped away and times of refreshing would come. It's amazing. Peter's prayer, in other words, Peter's desire for these people on the day of Pentecost became exactly that of Jesus here in Luke 23. Peter's desire was that the Father would forgive them because they were ignorant. They did not know what they were doing. That they would repent and that times of refreshing would come. Peter's desire is exactly that of his masters. And I submit to you that perhaps... One reason Peter was so willing to offer forgiveness to these 
ignorant, foolish sinners is because he had been so freely granted forgiveness himself after his threefold denial of Jesus in these same chapters at the end of the Gospels. He denied Jesus three times, and three times Jesus spoke words of restoration to him. Perhaps that was why he was so willing to have the heartbeat of Jesus and to have compassion on ignorant sinners. And if we can remember just how ignorant we were and how much God has forgiven us, then perhaps we'll be that much more able to pray the same for others. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Forgive them like you forgave me. I didn't know what I was doing, and they didn't either. But forgive them. Indeed, if you are a Christian, just think for a moment of how God has shown his mercy toward you. Was there a time, Christians, when it could have been said of you, he doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know how serious her sin really is. Could that have ever been said of any of us? All of us, right? Some of us as children, some of us well into our adult years, we didn't know just how serious this sin really was. And it was our own fault, wasn't it, that we were ignorant? We don't have anybody to blame for our ignorance but ourselves. And yet in our sin and in our ignorance and in our foolishness, the Savior had compassion on us. He had compassion on you, Christian. He had mercy on you. He said of you, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Help them understand. Help them repent. Forgive them. Indeed, perhaps he's saying that to someone even now this morning. Perhaps even today, someone in this room is coming to realize for the first time just how serious your sins really are. You've never before considered just how bad it is to sin against the Lord of glory. But now you've realized. And if that's you, if you are under conviction of your sin this morning, let me say to you that there never was a sin more heinous than the one committed in Luke 23. But there never was such compassion as Jesus showed these very sinners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Listen to the crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And yet above all of the din and the noise, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Crucify him, Father, forgive them. Look at the false witnesses. Standing at a distance, perhaps, from the cross. Maybe they had little sacks of money in their hands that they had, quote-unquote, earned at Jesus' expense. Look at the false witnesses. They're there. Jesus knows that they're there. And still he prays, Father, forgive them. Now fix your eyes on the Roman soldiers. Beating Jesus in the head with reeds. Spitting in his face. Punching him. Bowing down to him in mock allegiance crowning him with thorns, banging those nails into his hands and feet. And yet, amid the cackles and amid the taunts and amid the clanking of iron hammer against iron nails, the words come as a prayer for them as well. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And I say to you, Ignorant, desperate sinner, though you may be this morning, if Jesus could say it of them, he could say it of you. Father, forgive them. And not only does Jesus say these words from the cross, but as you know, he gave his life on the cross 
so that that prayer might be answered. Here is more proof that the sins of ignorance are still sins and are still worthy of death. Christ had to die for sins of ignorance, just like every other sin. These sins are serious enough that Christ had to die for them. And yet, here is full and final proof also of Christ's compassion toward those sinners, that He chose to go to the cross and die for them. He died for sins to fulfill the demands of God's justice, and at the same time He died for sinners to demonstrate the depths of God's love. Fulfilled God's justice against sin and poured out God's Mercy towards sinners, all on the cross. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, Peter tells us. He absorbed our punishment in his body, all that our sins deserve, yours and mine, so that the requirement of God's justice would be satisfied and the floodgates of his mercy would be open. And now what's left for the sinner to do? The sinner who's never come to Jesus at all, or the sinner who has come to Jesus and experienced his mercy, but has come to the beginning of this new year, realizing afresh that there are things that need to be repented of, things that need to be forgiven. What do we do? How do we respond when we realize what we've done? When we begin to see the seriousness of our our sins, what do we do when it can no longer be said of us, they don't know what they're doing? What do we do when we're convicted of sin and when we realize that Christ loved us and died the death that we deserve? Or, even more so, how do we respond if we're like Caiaphas and the scribes and the Pharisees? How do we respond if we have long since realized the guilt of our sins and we've continued in them with a high hand? What do we do? Well, in either case, the answer is the same. Your sins are high-handed or your sins have been committed in absolute foolishness. In either case, the solution is the same. In the words of Peter that we read, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is the preaching of Peter, but that's the prayer of Jesus as well. Father, forgive them.